Good morning, everybody. Hopefully you're having an outstanding Thursday morning. I'm really excited about today's show. I have a special guest, but I'll get to that in a moment. The first thing is, let me get my stuff all set up here. Uh, Welcome to the Break the Cycle with DSC podcast, which uh, isn't showing up correctly on my little thing, so I'm going to go back over here. I'm your host, Dwayne. I'm an individual much like yourself who's been through a tough, difficult situation with a high-conflict ex, and uh, I, sh- I developed some tips and techniques over the years, over the nearly decade I've been dealing with this, that I share with you to hopefully help you get your life back, break the vicious cycle that just keeps going on and on and on, and if you have kids, to help you rebuild or strengthen the relationship with your kids, and if you're dealing with parental alienation, to hopefully minimize that a little bit. I want to get into, let me get over here, uh, my stuff kind of messed up today. Uh, I'm not a therapist, like I, I, I mentioned. So uh, the other thing is only a licensed professional in a clinical environment can diagnose somebody with a personality disorder. So, And we'll get into this with the guest today. But be really careful when you go around and you've determined on your own that your ex is a cluster B narcissistic personality disorder. Maybe they got borderline. And you're going around and you're telling everybody that it hurts your credibility focus on the patterns of behavior and try to make the best decision you possibly can to help you and maintain your credibility instead of hurting that. Anyways, since we only have an hour and I am really excited to uh, have this guest, I'm going to go ahead and bring uh, Marco in. Marco Brown is an attorney out of Salt Lake City, Utah, specializing in divorce. I personally found him uh, through a, a TikTok video he was doing, talking specifically about, well, narcissistic divorce, which is the reason I wanted to talk to him. But Marco, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me on, Dwayne. I really appreciate it. Oh, man. I, you know what? I really appreciate the fact that there's attorneys that understand this. So often in my community, people will be talking about, well, you know, my attorney doesn't believe me or no one's seeing this, you know, or they're just downplaying it. And that video I saw of yours where you're like, look, you know, you think you're dealing with a narcissist and this is what you need to do. And you just laid out like day one, do this, this, this and this. And I was like, holy crap, this guy gets it. And I appreciate you putting that out, putting that out there for people to see so that they want know what to do. Right. I mean, and know also that, yes, there are people that understand it. So the first thing I wanted to, to just dive into when someone's dealing with, I mean, Every divorce is going to be very stressful and complicated. I mean, that's just a given. What is the, 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 like the single thing that a person needs to know if you're dealing with this? Either you know, they've decided to divorce or worst case, you know, they've been served papers and they're in this scramble. What's the, the, the first thing going in that they need to really think about to help themselves and minimize any mistakes they might make? I, well... For, for lack of a better way to put this, uh, you want to go get an attorney, right? And I don't want to be the guy, I don't want to be the barber who says you always need a haircut, but <laughs> you really do need to go get an attorney. And if you have a really, really simple divorce, you know, you, you've been married for a couple of years, so there's no alimony at play, there are no kids at play, there's no real play, then you probably don't need to hire an attorney for the whole thing, but you definitely need to sit down with an attorney and go over what the laws in your state look like and how you should structure your divorce. So pay for an attorney, sit down for an hour, hour and a half, ask all the questions that you have, talk through things. Uh, you, you can get that done pretty easily. There are really good ways online to determine whether or not an attorney is quality. You know, that wasn't always the case, but the last really five years, uh, it's become much more uh, people have become much more able to determine who a good attorney is. So spend a little bit of money, get that information. If you have kids, if you have a house, if you have a whole bunch of retirement, if you've been married a long time, then you really, really need to think about getting an attorney and meeting with one right off the bat to lay out a game plan and a legal strategy to deal with your divorce. Because maybe you haven't chosen this, but it's chosen for you. So you got to deal with it. No, that's a really great point. I, I, I want to ask you one little question that you mentioned on it. Um, how do people know? That's a, how do people find a really good attorney? I mean, because I mean, you, you're easy, right? I mean, you, you got all your testimonials on your website, which is outstanding. And plus, you got all the content you're putting out there. So you would be an easy guy to vet, right? I mean, it'd be like, okay, this guy gets it. I know I want him. But 
I've had a lot of people ask me, you know, hey, Dwayne, can you recommend an attorney? And I'm like, look, I, you know, it's the entire world. I mean, because I have there's people all over the world who who will listen to the show, and I have experience in a small little, you know, small little teeny tiny area. Um, and I, I'm like, man, you need word of mouth. But what are other ways that people can really vet and determine if an attorney's right for them? That's a great question because it is difficult in the sense that there's a real, you know, information and power imbalance between people who are not attorneys and attorneys and attorneys are not really good at getting their information out there. Uh, we're getting better at it, but as a profession, we're not really great at it. So this is the way I suggest people look for attorney, a quality attorney, especially quality divorce attorney. First, you want to determine whether or not they do 100% divorce. Okay, oh, so okay. you don't want a neurosurgeon who does 50% neurosurgery and like 50% leg surgery. That's not going to work out real hot for you. And tons and tons of attorneys will do 10 divorces a year. That's probably the average for somebody who does divorce is about 10 divorces a year. And you know, you can get okay after 10, 20 years of doing divorce at 10 divorces a year. But if you're wow. doing 30 divorces a month it, and you specialize and do 100% that one thing, you're going to get much better at, it, but better at it much more quickly. So you want to look and see if they do 100% divorce. I, I wouldn't ever go with a divorce attorney who did anything less than 90%. Then... Oh, yeah, go, go ahead. On. No, I would... Well, okay. I was just going to say that... Um, one of the things that, that uh, going through my own experience is an attorney that does this all the time, they know the judges, they know the other attorneys, they know what you're dealing with. And I, and I know some people is like, oh, well, it's an attorney, they can do it. And it's like, there's a lot of stuff going on. I mean, and if like, if I was your client and I came in and I laid out my, my case and you're like, hey, man, you know, I understand you really want that. But in this area, most of the, or, you know, most of the judges tend to interpret the law this way. I'll say it that way, so that way it's not just a personality base. But I don't think people understand how critically important it is to have somebody who, who understands the, 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 the theater or the, the stage that they're on and the different people participating. I just yeah, want to... That's, that's, exactly, <laughs> that's exactly true. So that's one of the nice things about doing divorce 100% of the time is you get to know the family law judges, the, the regular judges, the commissioners, however your state is structured. Right. And you have to know those personalities because we're all human and we all deal with our own personality. So you have to know, okay, I'm in front of this judge and this judge likes this way of talking about the subject matter, or, you know, you can go talk to your other friends as attorneys who, who dealt with that judge. You're just able to put together a much better strategy for your client when you're in this all day, every day. Yeah. I, one of the things I just, um, I, I, you know, when you first mentioned, you know, like get an attorney first, I think, and we're going to get in, we'll get into the toxic aspect of this in a little bit, but I think you have to do that to protect yourself because I've heard so many horror stories where someone's like, Oh no, we have an amicable divorce. Everything's fine. They walk into that first hearing their, their, their ex is lawyered up and then just get nailed with, you know, false allegations and, and a complete change in the whole process. And then you're back on your heels. And if you don't have an attorney, you're kind of, I mean, you're at a huge disadvantage at that point. Yeah, absolutely. So if your ex or soon to be ex has an attorney and you think to yourself, oh, I can do this. This isn't that hard. You know, the, the personal injury attorney on, on television doesn't seem that intelligent. So I can, I can make do. You are going to get walloped it's it's going to go very very poorly for you and whenever i say this i always get somebody who says well i did and i did just fine yeah that's great if you want to try to be the less than one percent that can figure this stuff out without a without a law license go right ahead the rest <laughs> of you are gonna get absolutely screwed in court i uh you know I've, I've heard people who've represented themselves and and i have um some i guess colleagues that that focus their channels on that. I know for me personally, it was too emotional. There is no way in hell I could have dealt with that amount of stress and been, and then tried to perform in an arena I've never, I had no clue at, was just too much for me. So I, I'm a strong advocate for finding somebody to help you. You have to find the right one because if you pick somebody who's really not fighting for you or working for you, 
then you, you know, you're kind of at a, another huge disadvantage. Yeah, that, that's, that's absolutely true. So let me, let me address uh, this on a personal level. I'll get back to how do you determine who a good divorce attorney is. So on a personal level, I'm an adoptive father. We adopted our first son. I'm an attorney. I could have done the adoption. I've done them before. I chose not to do that. I chose to hire an attorney because I was too emotionally involved in the case. And it's not like it was even that hard, but I knew that if I messed it up, that I would have become emotional and I would have just gone down in a downward spiral in that case. So I hired somebody who just did adoptions to get it done. So that's kind of my, my personal experience with it. I hire professionals to get things done on the, on the legal side, even though I am a lawyer. So back to yeah. how do you determine who a good attorney is? So the hundred percent rule, the second is you want to look online and see if they have a good presence, uh, and good reviews. Now, there are a couple things with this. If they only have five-star reviews, like that's it, then they've booked the books and you can go buy reviews. I, in fact, I have somebody who calls himself my competitor in my space. And he, every time uh, we get to about the same number of reviews, he goes and buys 50 or a hundred of them, right? So you can do that and it's totally unethical, but, but you can do it. We don't play that game. So we have a lot of five-star reviews because we try to take care of our clients very well. And then we have some one-star reviews because that's just how life works. So you want a little bit of that balance, but you want good, uh, good reviews and you want to look for somebody who communicates well. So this is the next thing, the communication. Number one complaint people have with divorce attorneys and attorneys in general is they don't communicate. So I call and I don't get a call back. So what, what I've done this is just an example. Other people do it different ways, but what I've done is gone through and solved that problem. So in addition to all the normal communication people have with our attorneys here, text, phone call, email, they're going to get a call from their attorney every Friday. So they talk on a Tuesday, they're going to talk again on a Friday, and then the paralegal is going to send out a text midweek, every week to see how things are going and answer any questions. So you want an attorney who communicates with you exceptionally well and on a systemic basis, not just an ad hoc basis, like at random, but on a systemic basis, because if you communicate well with your attorney, uh, things are going to go much better for you. And then the last one, there are a couple there. Well, two more, uh, you want an attorney who limits his or her caseload. Oh, okay. most divorce attorneys will hold 60, 80, 90, 100 clients at the same time. They don't even know their names. Yeah. Uh, and think about trying to call 100 people, 90 people on a Friday. It's just impossible. So people don't get uh, talked to, right? So the way we do it here is we cap the number low to keep the quality really high. So you want to ask your uh, the attorney you're talking to specifically, what is your caseload right now? How many do you carry in a given time? Anything above 45 you're going to start having some real problems with communication with that attorney. So keep that in mind. And then the last one is feel you, you, you want to go in and you want to feel like your attorney gets you understands your situation and is going to be somebody who advocates well for you in court. They don't have to right. be the same person as you, but you have to be comfortable that they're really going to advocate for you and that they know the law. And the best way I can describe that is you go in, you talk with them for an hour and you get a feel for them. And if you trust them at the end of that hour, that's a pretty good indicator when you have all of these other things that you've also put into the mix. A lot of people ask, um, a lot of people think or, or say, I, I need an attorney who is a fighter and is, I'm trying to think like uh, the, I can't remember the term that people tend to. Bulldog. Yeah. 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 Basically like that. Right. What's your, I mean, is that, I mean, is that good advice? I mean, do you need somebody that's just going to be your attack dog as an attorney or what or not? Cause I hear different conflicting. Go ahead. You need somebody who's going to be appropriately aggressive. So if you meet with an attorney and that attorney describes themselves as a Rottweiler or a shark or a pit bull, really what they're saying is I'm a jerk and nobody okay. really likes a jerk. You know, the, the other colleagues don't really like jerks. Uh, judges certainly don't like jerk attorneys. So that's not going to go really well in the end. I mean, it may go well on a, on a case basis, but overall, that's not going to go terribly well for the attorney over a career, which means that his or her clients are going to be disadvantaged over time. 
So you want somebody who is appropriately aggressive, right? Again, the way we do it is we want to negotiate things out and get people on with their lives. But if we need to put on boxing gloves and punch people in the face in court, then that's exactly what we'll do because we're attorneys and we pick the time that that's appropriate. Well, plus if you have that reputation and you can negotiate something, like if you're my attorney and, and you're, and the colleagues know that, then they know that, okay, we, we can play this game, but at some point, if their client is being unreasonable, this is going to court and we're dealing with somebody who knows what they're doing. So that does help you. Even exactly. if you don't get to court, it's good to have that. Yeah, you need that. You absolutely need that. No, you need to be able to pull the trigger if you, if you have to pull the trigger. Yeah, I hear often, I'll, I'll hear people say that they're, uh, you know, they, they realize later that uh, their attorney is just really good at, you know, fostering an agreement, but not good at litigating. And that's, that's a really bad mix. That's, that's a dangerous, dangerous, uh, one dimensional attorney. You, you have to be two dimensional to be really good at your job. So I want to move in, move into this and, and which a lot of the people watching this right now are, are really going to be interested in is, okay, so I come to you and I go, Marco, and I'll do this. I'll do this. The, the starting out in in the 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 kind of crazy way. Marco, I, I got a crazy ex. You know, she won't let me see my kids. Um, I, I'm 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 trying to to see him. I've been served paperwork. I've been kicked out of the house. What am I supposed to do? You know, what is some? And I and I know there's two ways to do it. I, and I my gut feeling my gut feeling is is that you're thinking if I come in, you're thinking, oh my god. So if I'm that guy and I come in, what is uh, what's your approach? And what, what do I need to know before when I come into an attorney if I have a situation like this? Well, what you need to know is uh, well, you need to have your narrative straight. So you need to kind of have the story that you're going to tell an attorney, and that needs to be well thought out. Now, if, you, if you're sitting down with a good attorney, the attorney is going to be able to extract that narrative from you in some sort of structure that the attorney is going to be able to understand it. But it's a lot easier when you just have it ready at hand and you can go in there and talk about it, not dispassionately because no one's dispassionate when they get divorced, but you, you, so you're not jumping all over the place. Okay, so that's the first thing is kind of talk about the story. This is what I want to discuss. These are the, these are the things that are really important to me and what I want to go over. And these are the questions that I want to ask the attorney. Now, again, if you can't do that because you're in such a bad emotional place, that's fine. If you're sitting down with a good attorney, the attorney's going to extract that. Like, I'm going to ask certain questions to get certain information that I need to know, and then I'm going to let people talk through things. So that's how that's how I handle that situation. Okay, so let's uh, let's say that you look at it and you're going, okay, oh my God, this does seem like a high conflict, potentially not. Okay, just to throw it out there. I mean, obviously, if I came into you and I said, hey, um, I've got this two decade, I'll just kind of, you know, two decade marriage. My ex was never diagnosed with anything. But let's say hypothetically she was. And I'm like, hey, I'm dealing with someone who has a mental health issue. They're borderline or they're whatever it is. And obviously that's easier because you have the document. You know, you have a, a diagnosis. So I guess the first question is, is does a diagnosis actually help anybody in, an, in a family court case? A diagnosis can help you in a, in a family court case. One, depending on what the diagnosis is. So if it's depression... That's not going to help you because I think at any given time, what 11% of the American population is depressed. Uh, and I think 25% of people in their lifetime will be clinically depressed. So if we took away people's kids for depression, we'd take away everybody's kids essentially. So, you know, the, yeah. the, the diagnosis matters. Uh, depression, PTSD, these sort of low level anxiety uh, things that that's not really going to get you anywhere. When you get to, uh, NPD, narcissistic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, the personality disorders, they certainly can help. Uh, they are rare, and uh, sometimes I get flack from people for saying that, but you know, on a realistic basis, they are relatively rare. Although they do account for a good amount of cause of divorce. If I remember correctly, the data, borderline personality disorder accounts for a tremendous plurality of divorces in America upwards of, you know, in the 30%. So because they are so extraordinarily difficult to deal with by normal people, 
that they get divorced, but they also can't be alone. So then they go get remarried and they're serial divorcers. So right. they account for a large percentage of American divorces. So if you have those sorts of diagnoses, they can help, but they can only help in the sense that the diagnosis is uh, an accurate proxy for their own behavior. So if you have somebody who's oh. a narcissist, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that, that you get the kids or you get more money. What, what it does is if you have a diagnosis of narcissism and then that person is also abusive to the children and abusive to you and just generally horrible and they're having the kids for large swaths of time is going to damage the kids, that's gold, right? That's what you have to prove. So the the diagnosis is kind of the floor and then you have all of the evidence of the abuse and that's really the scaffolding that that uh, on I, I don't i don't yeah, make houses but the framing that actually makes a house. foundation it's the foundation of the case it's building block yeah exactly so if you have that yep. but see you you made a great point and and i think this is what people need to remember is it's really the pattern of behaviors you know, you could, if I walked in and said, I have a piece of paper that says my ex is NPD, is diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. And if you turn around and go, okay, well, how do they take care of the kids? Oh, they do a fine job. Okay. Do they get them to school on time? Oh yeah. No, the kids are, yeah, no, no, that the kids get to school on time. And you're like, okay, how are they doing in school? Oh, I, straight A's, you know, they're all on honor roll. One of my kids only gets C's, you know, whatever you're going to be thinking. I know it's like, well, the, it doesn't paint the picture. Yeah, you got that first foundation, but you haven't. You put a shack on top of it, or, or a straw hut, and it's nobody's. It's not going to amount to anything, right? Yeah, that's exa that's exactly correct. So you could have mental uh, mental disorder of some sort, and it can absolutely not mean anything in family law court, no matter how much uh, one of the parties, one of the par uh, one of the spouses wants it to. And this is where I tend to differ with some of the, and I'm going to use a term and maybe people aren't going to like it, but internet gurus out there on, you know, YouTube or whatever other channel, I'm not putting you in this, but, uh, you know, there's some gurus out there that say, well, if they're a narcissist or if they're this or they're that, then they're automatically a horrible human being. And you're going to really, you know, get a lot of play in your divorce and you've been automatically abused and the kids have been automatically abused. Now that that's not quite correct. So you can have a mental disorder and still be a relatively good person. And it, 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 to such a degree that it's not really going to affect the divorce and child custody in the divorce. Those two things are separate and people need to know they're separate and they need to be able to put together the evidence and give the evidence to the judge in such a way that, that it proves abuse. That is really what the judge is going to be looking for. No, that's a really great point. And the other thing I just want to hit on that I I've have, I deal with a lot of people who, who are, you know, oh, I have depression. My ex says they're going to take the kids away from it. But, but the reality is, is that unless the, there's a pattern of behavior that backs up whatever they're trying to accuse you of, you need to relax a little bit, right? Yeah, exactly. I see this all the time from, uh, it's both males and females, but usually males will do this to females a, a little bit more. So let's say a uh, wife has depression and the husband, for whatever reason, has decided to divorce her. And he says, well, I'm going to get the kids because you have you have depression and, you know, you stay in bed sometimes and on and on and on. But that is usually just a method of control. And he's probably been a controlling person throughout the marriage. And this is an extension of the control that he's trying to exert, right? So he'll say these things. I, I get women coming in all the time that are just scared out of their minds. that They're going to lose their kids because, yeah. uh, because of a fairly regular mental illness that, that they're trying to get help for, that they're taking their medications for. And I have to reassure him all the time, look, He's acted like this throughout your entire marriage, right? He's been a controlling guy. He's controlled the money. He's controlled where you can go. He's controlled all these things, which is probably one of the three reasons you're depressed. And now he's saying he's going to use that depression against you to take the kids. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, I think the the interesting thing with that, or the, 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 the trap is, is that someone plays that game, you freak out, and then you start making mistakes 
which unfortunately then is the pattern of behavior that they could use to say, hey, they're depressed and look at they're not, you know, they're neglecting the kids or they're doing this, that and the other. I mean, it's like it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like you're going to mess up and it's like, oh, my God, I'm going to mess up. And then you mess up and then you're hosed. Right. Yeah, it's the cat. It's gaslighting, essentially. But it is a self-fulfilling prophecy. So you really do need to watch it. And that's one of the reasons why going and talking with professionals like attorneys who do this all the time is really going to help you out because I can't tell you how many I probably met with 10,000 plus people at this point in my career and I can't tell you how many people I've sat down with and had this very conversation where they say oh you know they say that that they're going to be able to take the kids and I'm really scared and and I said I say look that's just not going to happen nothing of what he or she is saying is accurate and it's not going to happen, right? And then that reassures them, and they can act like a normal human being after that. They're not as scared. Right. So that's one of the nice things about sitting down with an attorney and really answering, asking all the questions that you have and having them answered by somebody who does this every day. Yeah. I, one of the other things I find really fascinating by, by that is you, get, you can get so wrapped up in what your ex is saying, and then you make the mistake of going and talking to your friends, and they say, you know, what's the, the stereotypical thing? Oh, you're the guy you're automatically going to lose, you know, or worse. It's like, oh, you're the woman. So you're automatically going to win. So you don't need to do anything. Just, you know, you know what I mean? It's like, you really need to ask the right people, you know, I mean, and, and find people who really know what the hell they're talking about to get real actionable advice on the direction you need to go. Yeah. If you're sitting around reading divorce stories on, the internet, uh, that's not going to go well. If you're listening to like your friend Susie's cousin about her divorce and how she got $5,000 a month in alimony, and you're going to get $5,000 a month in alimony, even though your husband makes $8,000 a month. I mean, none of this makes sense, but this is what I have to deal with every day when people go to the internet and they read these crazy stories, which are just almost uniformly not true. Uh, I mean, I've read them and they don't even make sense. But I have, you know, I have to deal with that, right? right so right. do yourself a favor. You want to read some of that, great. But then the chaser to that has to be sitting down with an attorney who does this stuff all the time and is well-respected in the community and get your answers from him or her. Let me, I ha- if I can find this real quick, I had somebody, I've had a few questions come in. Uh, it's kind of hard to find them. Uh well, I'll just read this. My moderator sent it to me. So Adam H says, what are some of the interview questions that a client should ask a new attorney to, to know, you know, so if I'm coming to you, what would be good questions that I, that I would ask to, to know that you're the right guy for me? Uh, specific questions are tough uh, because so much of what we do is really going over your story and then you be able to answer questions. So I'll give a, I'll give a couple things that I would ask. But really, what you want to do is you want to be able to tell your story in the beginning to the attorney, and you want the attorney to shut up and listen to you. So if you have an attorney okay. who interrupts you all the time, and not interrupts with questions because that's normal human conversation, and and the attorney needs to know those uh, things. That's why the attorney's asking. But if the attorney's just interrupting you to to kind of pontificate, then that's probably not really the best way to go about this. And then when you ask questions, you want an attorney to answer those questions in a way that you understand them. So if the attorney attorney uses jargon or legalese and you don't really understand what they're saying, then you probably don't have a really skilled divorce attorney because it's easy for an attorney to use jargon. It's much, much harder for an attorney to express difficult legal concepts in uh, in a way that non-attorneys can understand it in a short amount of time. So if you find an attorney that does that, that's an attorney who's really skilled at their craft. Then the specific questions, like I said before, you want to ask the attorney what percentage of your practice is dedicated to divorce and you want at least 90%. I would ask also what the caseload is. Like I said, anything above 45 is probably not a good number. And you want to ask it in this, you want to ask it like this. How many cases do you currently, how many divorce cases do you currently have? Right? Because 
you ask another type of question, an attorney can fudge that answer. <laughs> if you ask specifically how many you have right now, and the attorney says 70, then you know it's going to be way above 45 on a regular basis. Right. I see what you're saying. And I, I think what, an interesting part about what you were just saying, too, is just by the communication, that's kind of your test too, right? So I don't necessarily have to go, okay, okay, Marco, let me ask you these five questions. It's, it's more of an a- analyzing the, the interaction, the response. So if I'm telling you a situation and you start asking questions or you start saying things where I'm like, oh, okay, this guy gets it, then I, I know you've, you're, you're more spot on. I loved what you just said about find, you know, having an attorney who can explain to you in normal, you know, normal human communication what's actually going on as opposed to just throwing out all the legal terms. That's, that's a, that's a really smart one. Cause it's, this stuff is so damn confusing. Yeah, it, it can be. And, you know, in some sense it's meant to be confusing. I mean, it's not, but it kind of is, uh, lawyers are what I like to call a cartel. So they're yeah. a relatively limited number of attorneys and it's hard to become an attorney. Like it's hard to become a doctor and there's probably a good reason for that. But, with that, attorneys tend to want to make things more complicated than they actually are in order to show their intelligence, because being an attorney is a status symbol. And a lot of attorneys kind of treat it like a status symbol, but good, good and very excellent attorneys do not care about their status. They care about communicating clearly with their clients. No, that's a great point. So the next thing I wanted to, to, to I guess, dive into is false allegations and I mean, just the smear that happens in court. And, and I guess the first question I'll ask on that, and this is what I tell most people is I think everybody involved, uh, you know, attorneys like yourself and judges, they, they kind of expect everyone's going to basically, they hate everybody. And, you know, so if I come in and say, Oh, my ex is a really bad person. They, they're a bad parent and, and they hate their kid or whatever the heck it is. I can't go in and, and be look thinking, okay, everyone's going to hear that at a hundred percent and take it like, Oh wow, Dwayne is saying this. So this must be true. I mean, it's like there, there's this. So, I mean, I guess the first part about it, the first part about the question is, is that an, a true, is that an accurate assessment on my part that that's kind of everyone's story is, is suspect. Yeah. Ish. Everybody's story is suspect. So okay. judges will kind of automatically not believe uh, what people are telling them. And for good reason, they're meant to be skeptical. If you have a judge that just buys everything that everybody says, that's a horrible judge. And the same kind of thing with attorneys. Attorneys need to have a healthy respect for their client's story and also realize that everybody lies to them at to some degree. So, you know, they need, they need to realize that as well. And they need to pick at their client's story a bit, not to denigrate their client in any way or prove or really prove their line but to bolster the case so you right. want an attorney that does that so they can bolster a case because when you go into court you need to be able to put up goods right you need to be able to prove your case with evidence with actual evidence and the only way you can do that as an attorney is to have picked apart the story and then put together the evidence to prove the story let me so dovetail on that uh because some people, you know, it's like, I got this binder of uh, 900 pages worth of evidence. And I remember when I first talked to my attorney, they basically said, your statements and your stuff needs to be like a couple of pages, you know, and really get to the point because no one's going to read it. And what I try to tell people is you got to really focus on the hard hitting, hitting issues that really prove your point or are really are clear examples of what you're dealing with, Right. Yeah. So let's take child custody, for example. Um, So child custody, there are a lot of factors upon which a judge makes a a child custody determination, but they're really about two or three that make the most difference. Primary parent, uh, what the status quo of the, the parenting was. So what I mean by status quo is how it was before you, how you started, before you started the divorce process. So if you both live together and we're both very active parents in the kids' lives, and then you want to get divorced and one side says, well, I need 90% of the time and the other person should get 10% of the time, the status quo is going to say, is going to dictate probably not, you know, you 
really didn't think that before the divorce started. So I'm probably not going to go along with that. So there are really two or three factors that are super, super important. And what we do as attorneys and, and what people need to realize out there is you don't want to go prove every single factor. You want to have a whole bunch of very good evidence about the two or three factors that are going to make the most difference to the judge. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. So the other thing on this, that or the other, other question I wanted to ask, which kind of pivots this, is false allegations and uh, false domestic, or we'll just say restraining orders, right? Because that's, that's the thing. I, I get constantly people who are like, I have, I have a, a temporary protective order, a restraining order. Um, sometimes my opinion normally is like, okay, so that just because you got it, you got it, uh, they've, they filed a restraining order. doesn't mean you've lost, take a breath, relax, don't make any mistakes. But how do you fight that? I mean, if I would, if a client comes in and says, you know, oh my God, Marco, um, I got kicked out of my house. I didn't even know the cop showed up, said, get out. Uh, um, let's say they didn't get arrested or anything, but now they have a, they have a restraining order and it's like, they can't come around the kids or anything, you know? What is, I mean, how, I mean, that's not great, but how bad is that? And what, what realistically are my options if I'm that person and what's my way forward to, to try to deal with that? I think this comes in, uh, really there are two different types of this. One is where you actually did what your uh, spouse is saying. Right. And then you, there's the, there's the type where you didn't actually do it. And, uh, the type where you didn't actually do it is unfortunately high especially post COVID since we got into COVID people are filing, at least here in Utah, people are filing a lot more protective orders that are pretty bogus because simply because it just takes longer to get into court. So they're like, well, let's just throw a protective order out there and oh. see what, uh, what we can get, which is a very, very dirty way to do divorce law. I don't engage in it. I hate that kind of stuff, but we have to deal with it. So if let's do this, if you actually did what was, Okay. What was alleged in the protective order, then what we have to do as attorneys is to say, okay, well, you did this thing. So we're going to deal with the protective order itself. The protective order doesn't mean you're going to lose your kids, but it is going to make things more difficult for you. And if you engage in domestic violence, that's one of the factors that really plays with judges. So we need to do X, Y, and Z to kind of rehabilitate you. And we just come up with a game plan at the beginning to deal with that situation. If it's a protective order that is bogus, then we're going to go fight the protective order and try to get it kicked out or dismissed so we don't have to deal with it. Right. Uh, so that's the first line of defense. And then, you know, we, we go on with the case from there. Well, I like what you said that even if, okay, so even if I did do it, it doesn't mean it's, you've completely lost. I mean, right. I, and I, cause I always tell, I often tell people like, okay, if you made a mistake, there's ways to mitigate. Well, now what you have to do is you have to say, okay, you know what? I have problems. So here's, I'm going to anger management courses or here I'm doing therapy or I'm doing something to where it's like, okay, I recognize I have a problem or I recognize I made a mistake and I'm working towards fixing it. Right. I mean, that would be a good course of action on that to try to deal with that. Yeah, that's the best course of action. I, I believe uh, I believe in the redemption of the human soul. I believe in the redemption of the divorced person's soul as well during a divorce. So let's say that you engaged in domestic violence and there are ways to rehabilitate that. Hopefully it's not, uh, uh, it's not something that's gone on for a long time because the longer it's gone on and the more incidents that somebody's engaged in, the harder it is to rehabilitate them. But if it's a one-off or two-off, then there are ways that, that we can deal with that. Again, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to lose your kids. Maybe your spouse tells you that, but that's just not the way it tends to work in divorce law. We don't take the worst moment of somebody's life and then extrapolate that out for the rest of their life and say, well, you don't get your kids because of this, this one thing. I think that's uh, I'm glad you said that too, because I think so often I've, I've seen the, the other side where somebody feels that they finally, they finally got they got their ex. They got all the documentation. They can prove that they are a horrible, garbage human being. And in the back of my mind, I think two things. I'm like, eh, you don't expect to go into court and have, you know, that day be like, oh, my God, you know, the, the veil's been lifted. We all understand now. You know, let's march the ex through the middle of the street. That's, I don't think that typically happens. And the other flip side to it is, especially with a toxic person, 
they don't normally just sit there and idly buy and just let it happen, right? I mean, it's like if they feel like they're trapped, what I've seen is they come out with just a barrage of extra allegations or something and just completely derail the whole process. And then I end up talking with people afterwards who are just shell-shocked after they walk out of court going, what the hell happened? I mean, that's, is that common? Yeah. Do you see that a lot too? Yeah, and that's going to depend on the other person's personality. So if they really do have a personality disorder or they don't even have a personality disorder, they're just deeply dishonest as a human being, which happens. Right. Maybe you don't have, maybe you're not married to somebody with a personality disorder. You're just married to a deeply dishonest jerk, right? But in either case, they, they act like this and they realize that, you know, things are going to go poorly for them. So they just start making stuff up. So what we do as attorneys and what I think is really helpful for people to understand is that evidence and documentation wins. Like the better the evidence you have, the better you tend to do in your divorce case, especially when it comes to child custody. So if the other person is making up all of these allegations, then it's our job as attorneys to try to prove a negative. So I always, I always say this. If you make an allegation, you have the burden to prove that allegation. It's called the burden proof. But I don't ever treat it that way. I treat it as an allegation has been made against my client, so I need to disprove that. And in okay. doing that, I will get much better evidence and have much stronger arguments. So that's how we deal with it here. We don't just sit on our laurels and say, well, you know, you made it an allegation, you need to prove it up. It's like, no, no, you made an allegation. So I'm going to disprove it. I'm going to prove you're a freaking liar in front of a judge. And then I'm going to have a much stronger case. So it's interesting you say that too, because what I, what I have seen, and this will roll into my next question. What I have seen is people get into this, they, they, they're slinging mud for years. Right. And it's, it's like the sweet spot, which I hate to say it as a sweet spot, but it seems like a lot of the, the trend I've seen is like eight years into their disaster of a divorce. That's when things tend to pivot. And, and I think the reason is, is because the first eight years you weren't what everything you just said, the people weren't doing a good job of, right? So they're, they weren't building their case correctly. They weren't really describing it correctly. And then there's just so much volume that finally makes it. Does that kind of seem the case too, where people start out where maybe they're, they're, they're being hitting these allegations and then after time it annoys the court system where the judges finally say, okay, this is ridiculous. I mean, what's the process on that? That, that will usually happen long before eight years. So if it you, should, if right? You if you have a good attorney. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you have an eight year case, then uh, somebody is deeply disturbed. Okay. Right. So most, most divorce cases will take somewhere on the order of three to six months of active time to really get right. done. Uh, if here in Utah, if we go to trial, that's usually somewhere in the neighborhood of 18 months. If we do a custody evaluation, it may be 18 months to two years. That's a fairly long period of time. Yeah. Uh, if it goes beyond, you know, two to two to three years, there's something wrong. If it's just continual court for eight years, then somebody is deeply, deeply disturbed. And the judge has been very upset about this for a very long time. So on that though, how do you, that, what, what it seems like a lot of times is, and it's just really bizarre that a toxic high conflict person, potentially narcissist, you know, potentially MPD has a unique ability to frame the story to where they seem like they're the, the perfect little butterfly uh, or handsome, you know, you know, reasonable guy. And uh, the other person is just crazy, which kind of makes sense because if you've been going through this and you're, and it feels crazy, how do you know, like if at, at the end of that, you know, this long period of time that you're not, or like, I wouldn't be the person that's being perceived as the problem. I mean, how do you deal with that? Well, you can, yeah, you can be perceived as the problem. Again, it's usually, it's usually evidence and a family law it, it, divorce is just a difficult place because Mm -hmm. a place to be because a lot of times there's not great evidence like you do not sit down and journal every dumb thing that your spouse does because if you do stuff like that your marriage doesn't tend to go well right so yeah. there's not a lot of like contemporaneous evidence for for a lot of these things now there is you know we, we can get statements from other people, maybe people outside the family, you know, there are ways we can get evidence, uh, text messages, emails, 
videos. So there are ways we can do it, but sometimes there's just a dearth of evidence in a, in a divorce case and it makes it very difficult when somebody is actually very skilled on the other side and uh, will make you out to be the problem. Now, what I can tell you is usually people are not this skilled. I, I get a lot of people who come in to my office and they'll say, oh, I, my ex is this, this, and this, and they're very good at what they do. And uh, th this has been going on uh, a long time. And I think they've, they've kind of set this up, right? And, and my reaction to that is, yeah, that, that happens sometimes. Most of the time though, human beings just kind of do the thing that comes in the moment. So they're not as skilled at this as you probably think they are. And people are able to see them for who they are after you know a little bit of time so you know take solace in that that uh that it's more readily apparent to people on the outside than it is to you a lot of times because you're yeah. in it every day you you're married to this person you're willing to give them the benefit of the doubt but attorneys are not really like that and judges are not really like that so they can kind of you know and psychologists are not really like that either so they can kind of see through it no, that's a, thanks. I appreciate you, you, you throwing that out there. Cause I think so many people just think it's all lost and it's like, if you just hunker down, you don't take the bait, right? I mean, it's hard, right? It's hard to not get gaslit, you know, gasolated, lighted. I always screw that word up, but, uh, you have to, to focus on like for, so for me, if I was your client, I would think, okay, I need to calm down. I need to make sure that I'm portraying that I'm reasonable and sane and start focusing, you know, let, let the other person self implode so everyone can see it. And I need to stop distracting people from seeing the truth. Right. Yeah. Sometimes you just need to get out of your own way and let the other person talk. Now, the other thing I wanted to ask you, uh, is a big term that I'm sure a lot of people come in and say, say, Marco, you know, I'm a, I'm a victim of parental alien, parental alienation. My, my ex is, is, is brainwashing my kids. How is parental alienation perceived in the family law system? And how do you deal with that? So parental alienation happens in degrees. So the idea of parental alienation is that one parent actively alienates the child against the other parent. By, by giving them information, bad information about the other parent. So making up lies about the other parent or telling them truths that are meant to alienate the kid. I get that a lot is, well, I told my kids that my, uh, my husband has been sleeping with hookers. <sighs> I, I mean, come on, you, you're, just a, you're just a jerk if you do stuff like that. You are actively trying to alienate the kids. And they'll say, well, I did it because I'm being honest children like well don't be honest with the kids then just don't tell them anything right that is right. an act of parental alienation that is horrible you should not be doing that wait until they're 18 you can have an adult discussion with them at that point don't be doing that to 11 year olds and 12 year olds so that's the idea of parental alienation now parental alienation tends to happen uh on a on a low level on a fairly regular basis because we are humans and we don't like our spouses anymore and that comes across to our children they pick up on this and then they kind of wonder why and maybe you tell them a little bit about it uh and you know so it does happen on a on a low level between it, both males and females engage in it uh quite often in a divorce case what what really the the really bad situations is when somebody engages in it to a really really high degree and they're doing it specifically to completely and totally alienate one child from the other parent that is actually relatively rare as a phenomenon. And I'm trying to think if men or women do it more often. Um, I represent about 50% men and 50% women. I, I think I tend to see women do it slightly more often than men, especially since women are usually around the kids a little bit more. But either way, it's just gross. And it's terrible to, uh, uh, to go through that. But it is relatively rare as a phenomenon. You know, I, I think it's interesting you say that. And, and not so much that it's rare, but what I was taking away when you were saying that is like, okay, so everyone understand, everyone, all the professionals, you, the judges, the attorneys, the therapists, everything, understand that there's a little bit going on. So if I come in and say, oh my God, I'm being alienated against my kids, my, my, my ex is doing parental alienation, if I don't come in with really good examples of what's happening, 
it's like, it's no one's, it's like, yeah, okay. I mean, so my credibility, the credibility I would have is going to be diminished, right? I mean, oh, somebody's driving by. Yeah. The, the other thing I yes. wanted, to, wanted to say on that is what I tell people oftentimes is it's, it's a lot of times it's not overt, right? It's not like you, like what you were just that, that really bad example of, oh, you're, you know, your dad, you know, sleeps with hookers or, or whatever, but it's more subtle to where it's just like, oh, I really wish your dad was not so angry or I, you know, you know just these like little, little nuggets of information that they plant a seed in, in a child's mind and then they bounce over to your house and they're thinking about that. And then a question comes up or a situation comes up and then you perform in a way or act in a way to where the child is going, oh, my God, what mom said dad's doing. And I think it's a, it, I think we play a, a big role in our own parental alienation by taking the bait and and not take well, not taking the opportunity to say, OK, you know what? I'm uh, going through this experience. I need to pause for a minute and start trying to, to become a better person, become a better parent, become, you know, uh, deal with things in a better way. And that's the, the, the thing I've seen that, that helps. But I, 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 okay, so that was a statement, not a question. So if a person is dealing with severe parental alienation, you know, like, let's say the kids, this is the question I'll get to then. So, so the kids now say they don't like, I hate daddy. I don't want to want to go over there. It's like, so let's say I'm, I'm the, weekend dad, or, or let's say I got 50, 50, but I've made some mistakes. And now the kids are saying, I don't want to stay with you, dad. I, I want to stay with mommy, you know, and how do you deal with that? I mean, I have my own opinion on what that, that, what that is an indicator of, but if I was coming in with you saying, that's my situation, what, what would be the approach to deal with that? Uh, really two, two things that I found to be effective, uh, over my career. So if you have a case where there's legitimate parental alienation on a high level, which again, relatively rare, but you have that sort of case, then you need to get as much time with your children as you possibly can. Because the more time you have with your kids, the more influence you have over your children. So if you have 10% of the time with your kids and your spouse who's alienating you, uh, the kids from you has 90%, you have absolutely no chance to unalienate those children. So you need to get as much time as you possibly can with the kids. 50-50, you have much fewer problems, way fewer problems with alienation than at like 90-10 or 80-20. I, I just, let me ask so, that. Are, are, you, are you saying that at the beginning you, you need to do that? Or if, it's, if I've been alienated and I'm at that, at that weekend dad thing and I'm seeing it, then do I come back to you and say, hey, Marco, this is what's going on. I need more time. Or am I kind of hosed at that point if I've already been relegated to uh, the weekend dad, so to speak, the 80, 20 type. Yeah, that, that's a good, that's a good question. So I always tell people that you need to, you need to fight for as much time with your kids as you possibly can. You need to fight to maximize your time with your kids at the very beginning, because it's more difficult to do it later on. So if you don't get that 50, 50 and you have like the 90, 10 and you're relegated to weekends, the way you have to, this is really the only effective way to deal with it, is you go back and you modify your divorce decree and you say, I want primary physical custody of my kids. So I want the majority of time with my children. Uh, I've talked with psychologists about this. I've talked with therapists who do reunification therapy okay. and parental alienation therapy and assessment. And I said, okay, what, you know, brass tacks, what's the best way to deal with it? And they say, the only way to deal with it is to change custody. Uh, if, if parental alienation is on a high level and is really going on, the only way you're really going to get over it is to change custody because I can do therapy with these kids, but I see them once a week. And then the parent who's alienating the children after we get done with therapy, just spends three hours alienating the children to make up for the hour that I spent with them. So you, you really got to change things. Now, does that, does that work? I mean, have you had success with that to, in a situation where somebody was the weekend dad, so to speak, and they're dealing with this and then build a case to go back and say, look, dad needs to be, be the primary, primary uh, resident. Does that work? It, it can work. It's always an uphill battle. Okay. Um, but if you have, a real case of parental alienation and you find you have to get experts to do this. Like you cannot just go in with your evidence and give right. it to the judge and then assume the judge is going to see parental alienation because maybe that happens, but you have a much, much stronger case. If you have a reunification therapist and the reunification therapist says, yeah, 
I think there's parental alienation going on. And then you get a custody evaluator who's, who's informed on these and the, the custody evaluator makes that sort of determination. So you really need experts to do this. And that's an expensive process. Yeah. It takes a long time and it's an uphill battle, but you really, your, your choice is, do I capitulate to this or do I fight it? So let me ask you this, because I mean, obviously if I had the resources to do it, it's easy, you fight it. But, but let's say I'm a client who has financially ruined my child support and alimony is, I mean, I'm basically now living paycheck to paycheck. I don't have any money. I don't, I've lost, let's say I've lost all my, you know, I don't have assets. Uh, What are my options? Do I just capitulate or what, what would I do? Yeah. You either capitulate to the alienation and look, I totally understand people do that. They're just emotionally spent yeah. um, through divorce. It's been terrible. You have the other person and if the other person is alienating the kids. It's not like they just started alienating the kids when the divorce yeah. happened. I mean, sometimes that happens, but usually that's been going on for a long period of time. So you've been dealing with this for a long period of time and you're, you're just emotionally done and you can't do it anymore. And you give up. Like I, I get that, that, you know, that's not the way I would play it probably because I am who I am, but I totally understand that. Uh, but if you don't want to capitulate, then you do what everybody does who really wants to buy something and you go find the money. Uh, I mean, yeah. that's the only way that you, that I can describe this. People spend, uh, just an example, people spend on average $9,000 per year on a car in America. $9,000 per year. That's just, that's wow. insane when you think about it, but that those are the numbers. So you can find money to do these things if you really, really want to. I mean, you think about it like this. If your kid needed surgery or your kid was going to die in two weeks, you are going to do whatever is necessary to find the money so your kid gets that surgery. That's the kind of mindset you have to have if you don't have the money and you want to fight a situation like this. Because at that point, you are going to go do whatever you can to get that money and to go through the process. No, that's a good point. I know that's a, that's a bitter, bitter pill for people to, uh, to hear and to accept. And, uh, you know, I mean, and I know I provide other techniques if you don't have the money. I mean, that's kind of what my channel caters to a lot, but Hey Marco, we're starting to run out of time. Is there anything you want to final up, final, finally say on this or a little nugget of truth that could be the epiphany, the, the eye opener for the people listening right now? I think I think something very important to realize when you're going through a divorce and you're going through litigation and that, and look, when I talk, I talk like an attorney, God made me to be an attorney and I love what I do. So this is the way I talk about things. And you really give people great resources when uh, that aren't going through the litigation process or can't afford to go through the litigation process. And that's absolutely necessary, but I talk like an attorney. So what I think people really need to understand is when you go in to an attorney or you go into a judge, you do not tell the judge what is in your head. You don't tell your, the judge your opinion of your ex. So you don't say, yep, I'm fairly certain he or she is a narcissist or blah, 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 blah. That everybody's going to turn off when you do stuff like that. And you can't assume that the judge or, or, or the attorneys are necessarily going to believe you. So what you have to do is you have to think through your story and then you have to put together evidence, like good, solid evidence, text messages, uh, statements from other people, videos, rec- audio recordings, whatever they are, uh, emails. And you have to lay that out and you have to say, oh, okay, this is part of my narrative, right? This is part of my story. And here's the evidence that backs up part of my story. So you really do have to think about this as an attorney, because you are going into a situation where you're dealing with attorneys and you're dealing with judges and judges and attorneys work off evidence. They don't just work off kind of lay conjecture or, you know, stuff people say. So that, that is extraordinarily important. And that's not how normal, that's not how non-lawyers think about things most right. of the time. Yeah. Right. And, that, and that's totally fine because if you thought about your life in that way, every moment of the day, you go absolutely insane, but you, you have a situation now that necessitates that. So you have to realize it and you have to start putting together the evidence. Thanks Marco for hanging out with us today. I really appreciate it. I know we probably just covered maybe the tip of the iceberg in this time, but thank you so much for giving us, giving us this hour to, to pick your brain. And uh, thanks. I appreciate it, man. It was fantastic. Thank you so much. 
Hey guys, uh, I'll leave Marco's links in the uh, description and the show notes. Check him out. Uh, I'll also put the link for his TikTok. A lot of great information, even if you're not in the in the Salt Lake City area. I do want to say thank you to all the channel members as I wrap this up. Thank you guys for making all this stuff happen. Uh, the names are scrolling on the screen on that. And I will be back tomorrow. Be kind to yourself. Don't let all this... I mean, I know this is incredibly stressful, but, but uh, take a breath. And don't let this basically dominate your life.